Rules to Reality is a podcast that highlights how regulation shapes or fails to shape our daily lives. I'm speaking to you from Wurundjeri country and would like to pay my respects to Elders past and present and any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people listening today. I would also like to acknowledge the ongoing role that colonisation and racist regulation has had on First Nations, but also First Nations resilience and survival in continuing to connect and practice the oldest living culture in the world. Today I speak with Professor Kate Henner. Kate is the director of RegNet, which is the School of Regulation and Global Governance at ANU. She also leads the Justice and Technoscience lab within RegNet as well. Kate's research interests and areas of expertise are enormous, and I'll put links to just some of the examples in the show notes. But to give you a flavour, they focus on the intersection of politics and technology as it relates to biomedicalization, criminalization, gender regulation, human enhancement and well-being, and heavily discussed in this podcast, surveillance and police technologies. Technologies of these kinds are proliferating and making their way into our life in visible and invisible ways. They're becoming normalized, part of how we deliver services, how we prevent or monitor cheating, or how police police. Various digital technologies aren't just focused on you know, organising our calendars or romantically swiping in your neighbourhood, they're increasingly being called on to address systemic and structural issues in our community. And it's not clear whether these technologies are doing more harm than good. But what is clear is that the potential benefits of these technologies are married to real risks. And those risks mean we need to have a conversation about regulation. Kate is a wonderful expert to guide us through that conversation. And despite being so knowledgeable, Kate is a very generous conversationalist and very regularly highlights excellent research of her colleagues. I think you're going to enjoy this episode to start off the year. So please enjoy this episode, subscribe, and rate the podcast on iTunes or Spotify. Well, thanks so much for coming here, Kate. Look, the the question we ask all interviewees is, um, why does regulation matter to you and why does it matter to your community? Um, could you give us your thoughts on that? Gosh, in relation to technology, that's such a timely question because I think we're in a space right now where we've long recognized concerns about ethics, but we're increasingly shifting to questions about how to ensure more effective regulation because ethics just isn't quite delivering that. In fact, in some cases, ethics is being used to kind of enable what we call self-regulation by the entities that are actually you know, perpetrating harms in some cases. And so it's not that ethics themselves is a problem, it's that we're asking more serious questions about what regulation could look like. Um, and I think we're really seeing that prominently around questions of automation and artificial intelligence, for example, by both government actors and civil society groups. And so it's pretty exciting because I think, you know, some of us might see us as a scholarly community concerned with regulation and technology, but I think now that community is becoming much more broader and also aware of the fact that government regulation alone may not be enough and that we need to really think critically about the plurality of, of regulatory actors in this space. So for example, we need to regulate Google 
but Google itself is also a powerful regulator. And so how do we balance that and the power issues? So I'd say it's pretty exciting and it matters for a lot more people right now than perhaps before. Yeah, I think um, that's come to prominence in the last um, last couple of years. Absolutely. I think it's certainly more visible the, the need for that. So a theme across much of your work is, um, I guess, focuses on the, the legal, regulatory and political factors um, that affect or are affected by technology. Um, technology affects our political environment um, and our political environment affects our politics. Could you unpack some of the examples of this that have come up in, in your work? Yeah, and you know what, that's a great description. I should probably use that about my work in the future. <laughs> so thanks for that. I appreciate it. Um, I guess I should preface this, my response to that is that, you know, I think politics and political institutions and political actors are really important. But a lot of my work actually looks at the more mundane politics or the everyday politics and how technology plays that plays out in those contexts. So kind of like that older feminist slogan, the personal is political, that really resonates because I do think they, they are interconnected. Um, and I think we can see some of these concerns play out really clearly in some of my past work, which focused on the introduction of mandatory drug testing in different contexts. So, so to give listeners a bit of a background on that. So I've looked at that in terms of justice involved persons. So people who are on parole, physical culture and sports. So both gyms and both professional sport and elite sport as well as welfare contexts. And so those are really diverse spaces, but we see some similar things play out in terms of politics. So for example, in both sport and welfare, the use of drug testing technologies have been championed by certain political actors, namely government actors. Um, and we've seen this in the US and in Australia actually. Um, and their use can really mutually inform and reinforce certain political beliefs and ideologies, even though they're very different spaces. So for example, in sport, the driving factor for drug testing was a suspicion of cheating. In welfare, it was suspicion of using funds for non-essential goods or, or goods that were seen to be reflective of bad behaviors or personal deficiencies or things that would contribute to not working, such as alcohol. So there's all these embedded assumptions, um, but a clear driving logic around suspicion underpinning both. So in both spaces, we see a desire for proof of this behavior um, that's often framed as wrongdoing. And then that culture of suspicion permeates and, and becomes, you know, seemingly validated because we're, you know, going to provide evidence of it. Of course, if you look at the U.S. data, they've spent tons of money and not found these issues, mm -hmm. yet it still circulates in different jurisdictions. And, and a lot of surveillance scholars in other spaces have traced this um, in addition to my own work. But it shows that, you know, you can see political actors and institutions operating, but it also affects the politics of everyday life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we, we've seen that um, here in uh, Australia, obviously, with um, examples like RoboDebt, yeah, um, like in the Definitely. surveillance of welfare uh, recipients. Um, that's yeah, a, that's yeah. And, and that's a really good example to bring up because it doesn't just start with drug testing. So if we look back at the history of sports, it starts with drug testing and it becomes this much bigger surveillance regime. In welfare, we see a much bigger surveillance regime around lots of different things. And so it's not just the drug testing causing the suspicion. It's the fact that we've created this culture of suspicion and enabled it through surveillance. Mm. Um, and it may start with particular technologies, but it's the broader ecosystem that, that we really, you know, place certain people in. It's interesting. Um, you said that uh, um, for the listeners, I was fortunate to, to study under 
um, pro uh, Professor Kate Hen here um, uh, last year, and um, one of the, the the topics or the the articles that we touched on was um, is uh, are, are there inherent politics to technologies? Um, so not just can technology be used to um, uh, to marginalise individuals or to to achieve political ends, but does the technology itself carry some kind of political um, nature to it? And and when you talk about that uh, and about surveillance technologies, arguably maybe there is a politics inherent in that technology. I don't I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I think someone could certainly argue that. I mean, obviously that article did, and I think it's a really compelling article, even though I think it was written in the 1980s. Mm. Um, and, you know, there's been some debates in sports about this, like, could you use surveillance to actually support people's health, for example? So rather than punishing them, same with, you know, revoking welfare benefits, could we actually say, okay, we've got this test, let's, it's an indicator of something bigger, let's work on it together, but... Mm. And I think there's a possibility there, but the level of coercion can really undermine that. So it's like, how do you balance, you know, something that's well intended when it's built on coercion in a way that's required that may not have full buy-in or full, you know, enable the people to have full agency. Mm. So, yeah, so there's some debates around that, but I think you've got a really good point there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, you just described the mental health system um, and uh, <laughs> and the use of coercion in that setting. But that's my area of, <laughs> of focus often. Um, so, so you've highlighted uh, in some of your research, I guess, several instances where the the you know use of technology can contribute to further marginalisation. So. You know, even when it's actually not intended. Um, are there some uh, government-led examples of, of this um, in, in your research or, or that you've come across? Yeah, I think government, well, so it's interesting because the technology space is one where we see private actors becoming so powerful, even in the delivery of government-provided prov services. So I think there's always kind of a hybrid ele element to this. But I think if we were to keep with the welfare example, um, or the drug testing example in relation to welfare. You know, Virginia Eubanks has done some fantastic work in the United States about how, you know, these systems, which actually came under, under more progressive governments to help people get off welfare or to help them, you know, flourish, government has led this push in ways that has actually led to what she calls like a wider digital poorhouse. So people aren't in physical poorhouses anymore. And that's a good thing. But in doing so, we've created this architecture around them that may not be confined in the same way, but is certainly leading to further marginalization in a different way. So, you know, it may not be the same forms of older marginalization that they were trying to work against, but it's certainly um, creating those, those systems and they're not as visible, so they're harder to identify. Um, you know, if, if we go back to sports, similar, you know, it used to actively target working class athletes who had to be professionals because they needed the income to compete because they were deemed to be more likely to cheat. Now those class contours aren't explicit as now, but research has shown, including my own, how working class athletes and actually indigenous athletes in particular are deemed in need of more education than other middle-class athletes because they don't understand the rules or they become punished for things that are violations that aren't actually cheating itself, but because they're technical rule violations, like they didn't check in at the right time, probably because they have other kinds of obligations. And so the rules are really inflexible and because they're inflexible, 
they can, you know, lead to punishment that's not intended by the system, but the system itself, at least in, in doping and sport, most of the violations of these kinds of technical things are for things like recreational marijuana use and not the actual intention of the system that it's justified for. So in those more punitive situations, we can really see it. Yeah, and um, uh, anti-violence or consent apps, is that, is that another example or, um, yeah, is that an example of, of where, I don't know, I guess, um, government good intentions are um, possibly um, not going to uh, to realize in um, practicality? Yeah, no, that's a great point, especially when a technology is designed to help people who are already marginalized by the state or society, but the design or the implementation doesn't think fully through like how systems oppression operate and they mm. can be social, they can be institutional. And so the intervention while well-intended can actually create or exacerbate harms. Mm. And I think the anti-violence apps and, and thanks for raising that because that's work that we've just finished is a really good example of that. So for Australian listeners, they might remember last year that the New South Wales com police commissioner proposed using apps to document consent, like before a sexual encounter, as a way to respond to concerns of sexual violence and actual rape. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of criticisms around that for various reasons that, that maybe we'll, we'll park. But one was that, you know, documented consent could be enforced or, you know, it can be used to actually track, you know, people who are already victims. And so it actually can actually heighten levels of violence. But, you know, there's a wide range of these apps that are being used for reporting and to provide um, quick access to services for victims of violence. And, you know, if we think about those as a category more broadly, you know, there's some real challenges and problems. And so I've already mentioned that, you know, because it's a surveillance tool and it's got geolocation tracking, you know, abusers who tend to know the person who's been harmed you know, they can use those and weaponize those to cyberstalk. And they already do that with, with technologies. And there's some great research out of QUT and other places um, in Australia that have documented that. Um, but also the design of itself with these technologies, you know, often assume that sexual assault is perpetrated by a stranger, even though, as I've said, it's usually someone we know. And so the actual function doesn't capture or enable those intimate encounters to be thought through, or the fact that someone may not want to report an uncle, a partner, you mm. know, and so certain kinds of things may be reported in ways that don't actually capture what's happening. And just because we're reporting more doesn't mean, you know, certain actors are going to respond in a way that victims want a response. So mm. nearly mm. all of the design of these send you to criminal justice actors and not everyone wants that. They're looking for other kinds of services. Um, you know, you add the complication of corporate actors, you know, a lot of these things are monetized, the data is used for other things. So once you've entered that data, you could be targeted with services from companies and advertisements that may, you know, actually re-victimize someone and they, they see a certain kind of service provided. So there's lots of complexities that haven't really been thought through in this space. And, and I think while they're well-intended, it might just be better that we have more systematic you know, responses to the bigger issue at hand as a complex social issue rather than throwing money at technology that will only be able to respond in a particular way and not to the larger system. 
Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I interviewed someone um, last year, uh, Dr. Piers Gooding, um, and who uh, does research into me- digital mental health technologies. And, and he spoke about um, the issue of, of techno solutionism, um, yeah. you know, that which which sounds like a diagnosis for, for what you're talking about there, um, where often these tech responses are, are really oblivious to the sort of structural or political ecosystem that they're operating in and um uh yeah might might appear good on the on the surface might appear good to some aspect uh some parts of the community or to governments but um often aren't grounded in the perspectives of survivors or people with lived experience of of whatever the problem is totally totally and like the other dimension i just add to that now that you've you've raised that really important point is that once you've had a intervention introduced, if it doesn't work and we don't attribute it to the technology, it can actually reinforce really problematic and misleading narratives about the marginalized groups themselves that are being targeted. So, you know, why aren't you taking advantage of this, this support while it's on offer? Like, is it systematic or reflective of you? No, absolutely not. It's probably poor design and implementation and lack of attention to structural issues. But one of the, the challenges of techno-solutionism is it because it is purported as a solution, it can actually have really other problematic spillover effects. Yeah, that's true. I can, I can totally see that. Um, I guess, you know, that's, that's a bit about um, the, the um, government-led initiatives. And as you know, there's often partnerships and um, that, that distinction isn't quite so discreet. Um, but I, uh, shifting gears... You know, we're becoming aware of uh, the powerful role of big digital tech giants. You know, so we, um, you know, we've got Google, Facebook. We're all becoming aware of the the role that they play in um, uh, in structuring our public spaces, our private spaces. Um, do you see private sector examples of of profit seeking technologies that um, may further marginalised groups or may have unintended consequences in in marginalising um, some groups? Gosh, we could have like a, not just another podcast on this, but we could have like a full course on this. I mean, it's just a huge issue and it's a huge issue on so many people's minds at the moment. Um, Actually, you know, there's some really great work by others in this space that I should really highlight as opposed to my own. I mean, Sophia Noble at UCLA has documented, you know, really clearly the forms of racial discrimination enabled by big tech particularly the racist implications of online search engines and, you know, how they reinforce negative stereotypes about black users, but also when people of color engage, you know, with online systems, their experience is very different than more privileged peoples. And so that work, um, algorithm of, algorithms of oppression is really, really helpful in terms of really illustrating um, discrimination in practice um, and how private entities who aren't checked, you know, actually profit from it. Um, I'm working with um, Renee Shelby, who's based at Northwestern, and we're just wrapping up a special issue of the Journal of Big Data and Society, which is open access, about these bigger questions of racism and data. Um, And it's not quite to your point about private actors, but they're so central in here. But what's so fantastic about all the contributors, many of which focus on the private and public dimensions in that interaction, is they really capture how some of these shifts, because big tech has enabled big data to really flourish, how that's fundamentally shifted the way racism operates. Mm. So yeah, and so it's like a it's a bigger structural and institutional question of, 
you know, so much of our discrimination law and our responses to discrimination are based on the experiences of individuals and that holistic person. But now that everything is seen through the lens of data, it means, you know, discrimination doesn't always happen on the basis of individuals, it's conglomerates or clusters of data that are linked to people, but they aren't the people themselves. They're analyzed through really opaque means and then get linked back to people. So that sets up a whole different sets of concerns about how we think about discrimination and how we respond to it. Cause it's not that everyday encounter or a clear business transaction. And I think that's one layer that we are just starting to grapple with in terms of the influence of big tech or these you know, digitized systems that we operate in is that it actually changes the way our social relations are operating and our law and regulation hasn't quite caught up in terms of thinking that through. Yeah, absolutely. And, and um, uh, yeah, my, uh, my sense is that discrimination law is, is very far behind the, the eight ball on, on a lot of these things. And um, I mean, in some ways, discrimination law, when you look at the track record of it, it having been around for 30 or 40 years, we've still got um, so many of the, you know, social problems um, that were diagnosed, you know, 30 or 40 years ago. And so um, there is a question about how effective it, it has been um, as a social change agent or um, uh, um dealing with marginalization and oppression and 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 that's even just with more um you know um mundane is not the right word but more um known forms of um discrimination or inequality and like you say that the nature of that is is changing dramatically and um i don't think the 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 law is fit for purpose um at all i just finished writing an article at the moment um, about how um discrimination law isn't um uh, within mental health, um, people who uh, have a lived experience of mental health issues work in designated roles and they always get paid less. They always have w- worse working conditions. They're not seen as experts. They're, um, you know, the roles that they're given within um, workplaces are far more menial. And the discrimination law can't really, it, it, I, I couldn't find an angle where the discrimination law could really deal with it. Um, and, and I think that's really problematic and, and it's just as likely to occur in, in, in the circumstances that you're talking about here. Um, uh, worrying, worrying, yeah, worrying. And you raise a really good point about, you know, you know, because it's not working, but we have the law on the books. And so we assume that there's this progress narrative that because it's there, that there's actually gains being made and, and you've just raised that point, but so have critical legal scholars for decades now that just because it's on the books, you know, it actually might be hindering progress in some ways because we think things are being done when they're not. Yeah. Um, it actually makes me think of Natasha Tuzikoff's work and she's based at York University um, in terms of thinking through how this might play out in a digital space. So she's been looking at um, policies around preventing hate speech because obviously we want to stop online hate speech. It, it's really troubling, violent, you know, has certainly contributed to wider forms of physical violence, not just, you know, violence symbolic or that you experience online, which is also horrible. But she's actually done some really great work on the challenges of enabling big tech to be a powerful regulator in that space. So yeah, it's great, for example, that PayPal can, you know, enact policies and force efforts proactively and remove the services from hate groups. Yep, that's great. That's action. 
Mm. However, you know, what happens when we're ceding broader regulatory authority to platforms, right? When they're also causing harms. And so mm -hmm. she really maps out in some recent work published in Surveillance and Society about, you know, the really serious challenges that are actually underpinning this as we recognize it as progress. Um, and I think that really complicates or helps us see how our digitized worlds really complicates some approaches to counteracting social problems and, and thinking through some of the challenges of when we wanna pursue the public interests, what some trade-offs can happen in this space in doing so. Yeah, it's a hugely complex space, isn't it? Because I, I um, um, you know, people, uh, you know, we're within Australia, but obviously I think it's the first First Amendment, is free speech the First Amendment in the US or? Amendment, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, so is the second one. Um, uh, um, that uh, often when these debates uh, around regulating hate speech or vilification occur, um, um, and I, I used to work on this in, in a Victorian context, that um, you know you have the classic kind of uh, government taking over. Um, you know, the, the nanny state. You can't say anything. Political correctness. You know. Um, yada, yada, yada. Um, and, and there's real concerns about a concentration of power of, of a government agency um, controlling political discourse. And, um, you know, arguably you look at 20th century and there's been examples, um, you know, where government has repressed people through that. Um, but, you know, the, at least there is some mechanism of democratic accountability built into that whereas um th those people who sort of you know bang on about that concern don't account for the fact that those digital platforms are far in some ways far more powerful so far more sophisticated regulatory actors right like they they are probably better regulators um than a lot of the state run regulatory agencies out there um and they're accountable to to no one in a democratic sense um, no, and I think, I mean, you raise another good point. It's like, it, I totally understand people's nervousness or hesitation around government um, overreach, but given the transnational power of some of these entities, there is no way that we'll be able to counteract power without government involvement. So while I really think civil society is incredibly important, we have to find a way to harness government regulatory power in this space if we're going to minimize harms. I mean, I was just thinking about the Palantir example when, you know, Palantir, for those that don't know, is, you know, kind of notorious as a data analytics service provider that has contributed to harmful and biased defense and policing practices. And so, you know, because they have so much data and they have so much ca capability, they're highly desirable to provide other kinds of social services like the UK contracted, uh, the UK NHS contracted them for some data health dashboard systems. And, and so having them embedded, at least the UK, you know, ended that contract recognizing that, you know, it could be used and triangulated in ways that were really problematic, but that wasn't only until civil society really was up in arms about it. And so, you know, on one hand, we have to have these partnerships across, but on the other hand, we'd really need to find ways to push government to think through how they can push back against these entities, even as they increasingly become service providers. Yeah, and I, I'm, I'm certainly not aware of that example, but, um, you know, it, it highlights, and, and civil society has a crucial, crucial role, doesn't it? Um, but um, 
you need something more systematic in which a systematic process of regulating that that civil society can um, more efficiently participate in because you know there's only so much um, emotional resources the community has to be outraged about a particular technology before they just give up and the you know the floodgates sort of pass through you need actually some architecture where we can constantly participate in that regulatory process totally totally and and you're absolutely right like you know especially when we're asking communities that are disproportionately experiencing the harms to give feedback or to like be involved in the system like They've got other things they got to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. Like if you're a you know um, uh, First Nations community, like you're dealing with deaths in custody, you're dealing with you know um, systemic racism of so many forms, and then there's this new emerging digital f- forms of racism as well. And I mean, geez, you, you like um, how can you possibly prioritize it, um, all of these things at the same time? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So there's obviously diverse um, policy areas and issues, but are there you know themes or or principles that um, uh, that you uh, think would create a, a fairer political environment for for technology use? And I don't know what would that what would that look like? Yeah, that's a really good question, and and they are really diverse. Um, in fact, I was just thinking of, of the First Nations example, and you know, and your reference to to violence that those communities have experienced, particularly by the state and the police and how, you know, what could something look like in that space that's fair? Well, people have introduced body-worn cameras and in Australia, we've enhanced um, the capability to use those technologies in more spaces rather than, so actually enhancing police capacity by being able to you know, look at things in people's homes under the guise that'll be more helpful when actually we know more police contact, more police engagement actually leads to more violence. So, mm-hmm. so like the accountability tool can actually be used in a way that, you know, the accountability tool looks fair, looks like a reasonable response, but it actually enhances harm. So um, I think it's really contextual. It's really, that's a long way of getting, getting at that point that maybe we need to be thinking beyond notions of fairness. And so, you know, we've already talked about law in the books looking like something that that's an equalizer, but maybe we need to be thinking more about, you know, formal equity and the commitment to that and what that looks like. It actually might look radically different in different spaces. Mm. Um, April Williams and Jenny Davis have a great piece on algorithmic reparations, for instance, and they talk about like, they don't actually talk about fairness as a, as a discourse. They, they park that and they say, look, recognizing the harms that we've seen and at least in relation to machine learning and how that's been brought into different spaces, you know, what would reparations look like in an algorithmic sense? And they said, you look, it's a commitment to naming, unmasking, and then undoing the harms as they materialize in practice. So something that's live, that's Mm. responsive, that, you know, can attend to the technical while also thinking through the social. And so I really think that's a really great starting point for thinking through other ways of how we might approach the politics of technology and its use. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to get back to the body-worn camera example, you know, it would really require thinking through, you know, one, do these technologies even work? They've been purported to work, but actually if we look at the evidence to date, we see that they're largely ineffective in holding police misconduct to account. In fact, if we look at police budgets, they're used to justify and fortify budgets. Um, And so that takes away from the structural issue or we need to start thinking through the structural issue when 
communities are asking for reinvestment in communities. They mm. aren't actually asking for the particular technology. And especially if that technology is taking resources away that could be reinvested in other ways. Mm. I think that reparative framework is a really good starting point. It's obviously not just about resources either, right? There's many more elements um, of what reparation could look like in those you know, communities. Mm. Um, but I think another reoccurring theme that I've seen across domains is, is the lack of transparency, both around the partnerships that enable technology, but also how the technology is being used. And of course, trade secrets by companies and corporations can exacerbate this. Um, and I think we really need to think through what transparency can do, you know, by shedding light on things, it's just one piece of the puzzle but it might be one way where we start thinking through what meaningful checks and balances might look like mm. um, and what, you know, what harms are actually happening and maybe even, you know, what mechanisms internally are contributing to them and how we might develop ways to respond to them. Um, and so that's a huge project, right? And there's cause for human rights audits around certain technologies. There's a design justice network that's um, global. It's not just US centric, but there are a lot of actors in the US space calling for this around design justice and what that could look like. Um, Sasha Costanza Shock has written a fantastic book that's really accessible if anyone's interested and it's uh, free online to like think through how some of those principles could work in practice. Um, but I think, you know, to get to your earlier point that we really need to think through how design that process won't actually create additional burdens for the communities who actually experience the most harms or the civil society groups that are lobbying on behalf of multiple different actors and, and the diversity of those actors. How do we make sure it's efficient for them to contribute in meaningfully what meaningful ways that I think will still be a challenge. Yeah, absolutely. And, and. You know, even you, you, one of your earlier points there about how do you have the constant um, uh, uh, way to identify harms that are occurring from from technology, I guess, in an adaptive sense or um, a continuous sense. Um, and that's that is something kind of to my observation unique to, to regulating technology is it does. It's a lot more dynamic than than static kind of traditional um, risk based regulatory approaches. But there's to from a regulator's um, perspective I imagine they need to be a lot more um, they need to be a lot more transparent themselves a lot more open to the community often these you know you were talking about police there my, my observation of um, a lot of the independent regulators that oversee police uh, misconduct is they're quite closed institutions that regulate which ironically parallels the the um, the institutions they're regulating um but they're not very there's not really much public um community participation um in that process um uh there's actually often quite close contact with the agencies they're regulating but there's actually not much close contact with the um with the communities being affected by the issues and in order to identify those harms in a transparent way and, and a continuous way you would need to see an opening up of that i imagine Totally, that's such a good point. And it's why scholars have produced really important work, scholars like Amanda Porter about, you know, we just need alternatives. Mm. And her, you know, in indigenous communities, the patrols that are led by communities have been mm. really effective and minimized harms while also ensuring new forms of security that the police can't provide. So mm. 
um, you know, you can see why people think that's the next logical step in that relationship because those ties are so tightly connected. I mean, just to bring back the body-worn camera example, only because I've done a lot of work on it is, you know, in introducing new policies that enable police to bring cameras into people's houses because they want evidence of domestic violence or, or whatever, there's other justifications as well. Um, you know, there's the actual oversight bodies are the police themselves or entities linked to the police. So it's exactly what you describe. And, you know, yes, there's an oversight mechanism, but is it a meaningful oversight mechanism? Yeah. Well, not for the communities that experience police violence and what happens if that evidence in a video form gets used in a court and a victim survivor doesn't want it used. I mean, it can still be used. They have no, the recourse isn't there. And so there's a lot of other issues that spill over from the things that you've just described. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, we've, I don't know, we've had close to 500 deaths in custody. We've never had a prosecution of a, um, of a police officer. And what kind of confidence does that give um, someone to participate in those processes? Exactly. And then you see, quote unquote, reforms or accountability tools brought in, but no meaningful changes to the actual structures themselves. Mm-hmm. So that's another horrible message to communities. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, uh, you've given us a um, an incredible array of, I guess, the the intersections between politics, um, both personal and and, and structural, and um, government led and private led, um, uh, and how that interacts with technology and various kinds of technology. Um, you've also given given us some principles about um, how that can be improved going forward. But is there something that you want the listeners to go away and and do today after um, after listening to you? Um, yeah, I suppose a couple of things. And I think, I think one key thing you've just highlighted is like the disproportionate effects of technology and its regulation are absolutely essential to understand. Um, and that they can play out across different groups um, in various ways. Um, and I, I should say that, you know, I've focused on harms, but, you know, technologies do have important benefits. So we also want to make sure we're increasing access across those groups um, and and thinking through how those technologies operate in larger ecosystems. So so for example, the body-worn camera issue again, like, yes, I want resources to go to communities and not police for technologies that research shows aren't effective, but that's not to say there's certain, there are not certain contexts where those types of technologies could be used in a bigger project of addressing violence and distrust. So it's really about laying down the groundwork for thinking critically through the context and where and how it might work. And, and often it's not about the technology, it's about the relationships that facilitate its use or hinder its use or enable its abuse. Mm. So I think, you know, the relational dimension that we've highlighted, I think is, is really, really important. And I, and I hope others, um, you know, I'm sure people are already critically thinking through this, but digging that extra layer deeper to thinking through you know, the structures that are changing our everyday life is, is, it's hard, it's hard. So, but being aware of it's important. Um, I think the other thing is that it's absolutely fantastic that there's a push to regulate the harmful and unintended effects of technology. And that's, like I said, across academic spaces, policy, non-governmental community, it's, it's incredible. Um, but individual groups, you know, whether it be academic policy, non-governmental, civil society, or be technologists, entrepreneurs, or social scientists, 
in those camps, we're not going to be able to come up with solutions on their own. I mean, like, mm. I like to think that I've got some good ideas. I know lots of other people that have got great ideas, but, you know, it doesn't mean I have a full range of the complexities that shape these regulatory challenges. And that's why mm. I think design justice work is really important because it brings the designers in dialogue with communities and those communities can vary, but, you know, and there's lots of different communities that inform a design process, mm. but really, having a full appreciation of that is, is difficult and it requires multidisciplinary teams. And so I think there's a really fantastic opportunity, regardless of where you are in the social world or what you do for a job is to think, you know, how do I engage across disciplines, across sectors, who could be brought to bear on these questions of regulation? Mm. Uh, and like, what skills do we need? And so for me as an educator, that's really exciting. Like that's, you know, and, and as you know, I directed an interdisciplinary institute, like this is really exciting. We can put together different groups of people. We can think through what skills are necessary to address these issues. And really, I, I hope, I think that, you know, this is where universities can be really valuable as we can help curate and bring people together around these problems in ways that, you know, it's very hard to do in government. It's very hard to do in civil society, but we can help bring people together think through what skills everyone needs, not just individual groups, and, you know, really radically rethink how we, you know, train and educate others to think through these problems. And so I guess I would say to a, a, just a regular audience member that, you know, lots of people are excited about these things. So don't hesitate to reach out and ask questions if you don't know something, because we're all trying to work through the problems together and, and asking the questions helps us figure out what the next step should be. Yeah, that's a beautiful message of co-creation for us to, to close on. Um, thanks so much, Kate. I've really appreciated the conversation. Oh, no, thank you. I'm, I'm glad someone wants to hear it. I'm like speaking about it. <laughs> <laughs> Recognizing sure we went all over the place, right? Sport, <laughs> welfare, everywhere. <laughs> uh, you probably tacked on to a lot of people's interests. So thank you. No, thank you.